This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Alan Lightman, author of Probable Impossibilities. I think that we still don't understand what consciousness is, how, how it is that a group of material atoms and molecules and neurons can produce the sensation that the, this first person sensation of I-ness, of, of ego. We'll be back with Alan Lightman in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents the continuation of close to eight years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions and craft, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and a monthly newsletter. In addition, there are surprise thank you gifts that I offer when you enroll as a patron and spontaneous mailings like a bookmark all my patrons received this January embedded with flower seeds. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me in the production of this show. So why not make today the day to show your support? Why wait? Beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. And on to the show. My guest today is novelist, essayist, physicist, and educator Alan Lightman. He is professor of the practice of humanities at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Lightman is the rare individual who has taught both science and writing at MIT. He grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and lives in Massachusetts and Maine. His new book, Probable Impossibilities, Musings on Beginnings and Endings, is a collection of meditative essays on the possibilities and impossibilities of nothing and infinity and how our place in the cosmos falls somewhere in between. Questions about space and time abound in the collection from the perplexing notion of minute infinity, like how many times can we ourselves divide in half, and how far does space reach, and how did we get from stardust to the world we live in now? These are among the multitude of questions Lightman poses, many without definitive answers. We began the discussion with talking about the title, Probable Impossibilities, and what he was thinking about when he began writing. Well, impossibilities refers to things that we can't wrap our heads around, like infinity, the infinity of the small and the infinity of the large, and the fact that 
we were born from a tiny seed in our mother, and she was born from a tiny seed in her mother, and she was born in a, a tiny seed from a tiny seed in her mother back to some ancient woman 100,000 years ago sitting around a fire in a cave. That seems unfathomable, and yet it's true, or we, we believe it to be true. And there are, things, there are cosmic events that also are very hard to fathom, and yet are true. And those are the things that I call probable impossibilities. You begin the book with something that, I mean, you bring up so many different ideas and there's so much to like mentally chew on in the book. But the thing that I thought about daily and would tell anyone around me who who would listen about this book I'm reading was you write in the very beginning, every atom in your body except hydrogen and helium was made in stars long ago and blown into space when those stars exploded, much later to be tossed into the air and soil and oceans of the earth and eventually incorporated into your body. That is so mind-blowing to think about that we are made from the stars, that there is nothing. And I mean, it's such an appropriate way to begin. And I'm just wondering, I guess, like, how did you come to this sentence? And did you know that this is really what had to open the book? Well, I came to this, to the sentence, first of all, I mean, I came to it as a writer and as a scientist. Uh, Scientifically, we have very good evidence from a lot of different perspectives that all the atoms in the universe, uh, not just the atoms in our body, but all the atoms in the universe except hydrogen and helium, the two lightest elements, were made in stars. And so it's literally true that if you could tag each one of the atoms in your body, each one, and follow it backwards in time, that each atom in your body would end up and a star, and not just any star, but a particular star. Uh, not that all of all of us came from the same star, but every atom in your body came from one of the stars that used to be out there and exploded. Uh, so the idea uh, is, to me, is just as overwhelming as the idea that there was a, an ancient woman 100,000 years ago who was the mother of mothers of mothers of mothers traced all the way down to us. Um, so that's that's sort of the factual part. Uh, the, the writing of the sentence, of course, is, is another matter. Um, I knew that, that something dramatic like that, uh, the star scenario and also the mother scenario was a dramatic way to to start a book titled Probable Impossibilities. Uh, as far as the writing goes, I, I wanted a sentence that somehow, without exaggerating, um, would convey the, the enormity of the idea, and also with a little bit of color in it. But again, without exaggerating, I, I think as a writer that that sometimes it's better to be understated, especially when you have very rich material, that it's better to let the, the, the material speak for itself than attempting to embellish it with, with lots of fancy adjectives.
And it's, I mean, that's a sentence that, I mean, that whole first um, piece that's, that's quite short just stops you in your tracks as a reader, especially someone who isn't a physicist who might think about these concepts a lot. Like I often look around and say, how did this all come from nothing? Like how did a car come about and how did my dog come about and how did my computer screen come about when you think about that there was just earth and trees and rivers. But then when you take it back into like space and the universe and thinking we all just exploded from this tiny little molecule to this whole universe is like, I just could put the book down and think about it for the rest of my life. And so I would think as a physicist and a writer, that's also a danger because it's meant your book, I think is meant to be read slowly because there's so much to think about, but it's also trying to convey all this and then keep, keep the momentum going because there's such mind blowing ideas. Yeah. Well, I think that that science is pretty exciting. I don't think you have to be a scientist to appreciate the excitement and the wonder and the mystery of, of science. And, uh, the, the, the last few hundred years have, have revealed so many spectacular things about the behavior of nature and many things that are not apparent to, to us with our normal sensory perception. There, there are things that, that happen on a very small scale, s- smaller than an atom that are mind blowing. Um, and we know about them only from our instruments and our equations. And there are things that happen on very large scales, far beyond what we can see. So uh, the, the, I think modern science has, has enormously extended the, the majesty and scope of the natural world. And a lot of it is just mind blowing. I think you write in there that basically, you know, you have Maslow's hierarchy that starts with your basic needs and goes up to self-actualization. But you added in there that above self-actualization is imagination and exploration and the ability to ask, how did the universe begin? Well, Abraham Maslow was a psychologist, um, and I actually studied his work uh, many years ago when I was in graduate school. I was a, a physics graduate student, but I I uh, was kind of naughty, and in addition to, to studying physics, I studied philosophy and, and psychology as a graduate student. And Maslow has this uh, idea, this conceptual pyramid, where at the, the bottom of the pyramid, the, the, the big base, we, we just satisfy our bodily needs like food and shelter. And then as we move up to the, the, in the pyramid, as it narrows a little bit, once our, our bodily needs are taken care of, we, we satisfy uh, other needs like friendship and uh, emotional needs, um, the need for love the need for caring. And at the top of Maslow's pyramid is self-actualization that you mentioned, and which is the ability to, to, to get the most out of ourselves, to utilize all of our abilities and talents. And so the, the, the last piece of the pyramid, which is not part of Maslow's pyramid, but something that I 
added on, which would be hovering in space just above the tip of the pyramid, is our need and ability to explore the world beyond ourselves. Because I think most of all of Maslow's pyramid deals with uh, taking care of our, our personal needs. But I think there's also, uh, when, when we have plenty of food on our plate and we have friendships and love relationships and we've, we've expressed all of our talents, there's still something more, which is exploring the world around us and the universe and, and asking the big questions. And I think this, this is part of the human condition. It's, 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 it, you can trace it through all recorded history that, that human beings have had this curiosity to understand the world around them and not just attend to their, to their personal needs. Well, one of my favorite things about your writing and something that physics always seems to bring up are these big questions about why are we here? How did we get here? And, and who are we? And I found that throughout all of these essays, I would walk away if someone asked me that a major theme or question that you asked again and again in many different ways and many different um, angles that were each really interesting and fascinating in their own way was consciousness. Yes. The, the, the philosophers call that the hard problem in philosophy. It's su such a mystery. I think that that we still don't understand what consciousness is, how, how it is that a group of material atoms and molecules and neurons can produce the sensation that, that this first person sensation of I-ness, of, of ego, of existence. It's very, very hard to understand that. Even if you are materialist and believe that the world is all material, and even if you believe that, that all sense of self and ego originates in the brain, it's still very, very difficult to get from there to the actual first-person experience of consciousness. Yeah, I think physics, I mean, it's always so interesting because you start with these big ideas and you look up towards the stars and you start thinking, you know, then you break them down into their chemical components and the size of the atoms. And then it, it, it seems to always come back to this, this basic question of, of who we are and what it all means. And I know last time we talked, we talked about this space where religion meets, meets physics and how those questions are so predominant in these fields that seem to be so different. And I think that's something I know it's something we talked about too, about belief in, in God and a higher deity, which you don't have. And, and I think just believing in science is its own amazing wonder as you write. I'm curious if writing about this topic so much ever gets you closer to any sort of answer at least about your own consciousness or or something that you've alighted upon well writing about it does help uh, i i wouldn't say that i have any answers but i i would say that i understand the questions better i think for for most writers writing cannot be separated from thinking so so when you write you're also thinking so you are developing your, your, your ideas and your thoughts and your questions as you were writing and researching. 
I don't have answers to the big questions, and I think that's one of the, the things that makes them big questions, that, that they don't have answers. I know that, that if, we, if we use a metaphor from the literary field, and, and we talk about uh, fictional characters that are created in books, there's a writer who said that, that once you understand a character fully, that the novel is dead for you. That's sort of uh, the metaphor for not fully understanding or being able to answer the big questions, that the, 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 the mystery of, of the part of the iceberg that's, that's below the surface, and in the case of a, of a, of a fictional character, would be the, 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 the deep, complex layers uh, of, of a personality uh, that you, you feel it more than understand it. And, and that feeling that the iceberg is there below the surface uh, provokes you and it stimulates your, your creativity. It, it stimulates your wonder and amazement and awe. Um, I, I personally hope that science never has all the answers, that we don't ever have the final equation or the final theory, because I think that that the, the, the mystery and the unknown is, is part of what drives our creativity and imagination in science and probably in everything else. And that was something that was a theme through many of your essays. And then you get to this essay, it's called The Anatomy of Attention, and you're writing about a neuroscientist named Robert yep. Desimone who, who says that the mystery of consciousness is all overrated. Can you talk about his his kind of thoughts and, and your writing, your interplay of writing about that? Well, Robert Desimone is a, a top neuroscientist at MIT, and he studies what happens in the brain physically when we pay attention to something. Uh, for example, the brain is constantly bombarded with, with millions of, of inputs, of visual and sensory inputs, and we, we couldn't possibly pay attention to all of them. So how do you decide to pay attention to a knock on the door and not a leaky faucet uh, when, when this, those, both of those sounds are coming into your head? And he, he feels that if we understand that, uh, that that's the beginning of the understanding of what consciousness is all about or the sensation of consciousness and that if we just understand all the the functions of the brain at at the neuron level that a question like what is consciousness will be a meaningless question because it would be like asking where in a car does the speed come from where is the speed uh well that's not really a very meaningful question once you understand how a car is made that has an engine with pistons going up and down and those pistons connect to gears and the gears connect to uh, rods and, and connect to the wheels of the car. And so he sort of has that sort of structural view of consciousness that the, of the brain, that, that consciousness, is, what is consciousness is just the wrong question to be asking. I don't personally find that explanation very satisfying because it doesn't convey the 
the extraordinary and indescribable first-person experience of, of being in the world, of having an ego, of, of being self-aware. If you have some very momentous experience, like falling in love or lying on your back looking up at the stars and feeling connected to them, uh, I don't think that that experience is, is captured by knowing what all of the electrical impulses were of, of every neuron in your in your head, that it just doesn't capture it. And and I say that still being a materialist, I, I still believe that that the universe is, is just atoms and molecules and nothing more. But I do think that there are human experiences we have that are not really reducible to the material in which we're made out of. They're just too complicated. Uh, there's something uh, in science called uh, an emergent phenomena, which is a phenomena where you have that results from from lots of interconnected pieces, um, but in which the whole system has a, a qualitative behavior that that's that's not predictable on the basis of the individual pieces. And one example is the, is a, a group of fireflies. It's it's been observed that a group of fireflies, if they if they congregate together in a region in your backyard, that after less than a minute they will all start blinking in synchrony, flashing in synchrony. Uh, even if they start off flashing randomly, like Christmas tree lights. And, and you can understand everything about the anatomy of a single firefly, but that doesn't explain why a large group of fireflies coming together all begins flashing in synchrony. It's, 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 a, it's a collective behavior that cannot be understood on the basis of the individual parts, or the sum is greater than the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And now just think that we have 100 billion fireflies in our brain, 100 billion neurons, and the complexity of, of that behavior is just enormous and, and basically unpredictable, even if we understand how each neuron works. You write in there about your, I don't know if it was your first experience of of real consciousness, but when you were nine years old, you had this experience of looking at yourself from outside of your body. Can you describe this? And do, is there anything that you think led to that moment? Well, I would imagine that other people have experiences like this. This was uh, very vivid for me and why I remember it 60 years later. But I was nine years old, as you say. I was in a, one of the rooms of my house in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm pretty sure that it was nighttime. I, I remember hearing a train on train, a train track that was not too, a mile from our house. So I heard this train go by and I suddenly, I think I might've been looking out the window and I suddenly had this extraordinary feeling of being part of this, the, the stars or, or, being part of the, the vast expanse of, of space, my awareness, the awareness of, of, of myself as, as, a, as a 
single body just disappeared. And I felt like I was connected to this cosmic mind or this cosmic spirit or something like that. And, and, and time also disappeared that I felt like the, the infinite past and the infinite future had, had been compressed to a dot. And I sort of merged with that dot. I've had an experience like that two or three times in my life. I imagine other people have had it too, where you, where you really get outside of your body. In fact, you get outside of time and space. Uh, it's, it's a very strange, but beautiful experience of connection. It makes me think about like why some people do drugs. Uh, well, I, I have smoked marijuana. I'll admit that publicly. I was a college student in the 1960s and I don't think that there weren't, there were any who had, had did not smoke marijuana. So I know what that feels like. And I imagine that some of our listeners do as well. Um, I've, I've heard reports of, of people who have taken psychedelic drugs and, uh, I do think that possibly that experience is similar to the one that I described from being nine years old. I think there are a lot of reasons why people enjoy those drugs, and I wouldn't try to analyze all the reasons, but it, it may be that for some people there is kind of a, a cosmic connection that is made. Your book looks at what happened before the Big Bang and you talk about a scientist who is discussing that there is no cause and effect in the universe, that science had, has attempted to explain all events as a logical consequence of prior events, but a scientist named Page argues that the origin of our universe, um, that there isn't a distinction between cause and effect, and... I think that's hard for our minds on earth to grasp that one thing doesn't lead to another, although maybe our politics lately have have shown us otherwise. But um, I'm wondering how you think about that as it relates to writing and fiction, because usually there is cause and effect in in fiction and in essays too. Before I talk about the, the writing and the fiction, I just wanted to, to slightly uh, add a footnote to what you just said. The possible breakdown of cause and effect uh, would would have happened only at the very, very beginning of the of the birth of our universe when everything was was governed by quantum physics. And there is a kind of cause and effect that holds in quantum physics, but there's also an unpredictability and that things in, in, at, at very tiny scales obey, probabilities, but not certainties. That's a, a, a feature of quantum physics. But in the, in the macroscopic world that we, that we live in, cause and effect does hold very, very well. And, and writing fiction, if you want to write a, 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 a fiction, a short story or a novel that has believable characters, then they have to have many layers of complexity because real human beings are very complex. And there's no person who's all good or all evil or all happy or all sad. We're, 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 we're very complicated 
mixtures of, of qualities and layers of depth. And if a fictional character doesn't have those many layers of complexity, the, the reader will not accept them as being believable and credible. And, and then the, the novel loses its power, I think. And if, if a person, if a character um, that, that you've created as, as a fiction writer has those layers of complexity, then you, the writer, will not be able to completely predict what they're going to do in a given situation. You can control the situation. That is, you can put a character in a room and and you can write that their mother died a month ago and that their husband is, is having an affair or whatever. You, you can write all of that, but then the way that the character actually responds to that situation is something that should surprise you even as the writer. And if you're not sometimes surprised by your own characters, then that means that you haven't created them with enough enough depth and complexity. It's always hard to do. I think someone, uh, some writer once said that, that writing fiction is like driving where your headlights, driving at night when your headlights lights aren't quite working. And you can see out to a certain distance, but you can't see beyond that distance. And that's the way it should be. Um, that allows for the writer to be surprised and for the reader to feel that the characters are are real. Uh, it's, it's a little bit frightening as a writer because you don't know exactly where your novel's going. There's some plot-driven novels where probably the writer knows what the plot is from the very beginning, but the novels that I am more attracted to myself are not the plot-driven novels, but the novels where, where I feel like any minute the character could do something somewhat surprising. Of course, after the character has performed the surprising act, then you look back and you, and you say, well, I can kind of understand where that came from, but uh, you never fully understand a good character. And, and that's why the characters in a good novel can be debated endlessly that the reader is is haunted at the end of the novel and keeps thinking about it and turning it over and over in their minds. There's a character in uh, Raskolnikov in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, and he, he murders this this old woman. And you're never really, under, you're never really sure why he did it. Um, you, you know a lot about Raskolnikov, but you can't quite understand why he murdered this this old woman and and crimes and punishment and and that sort of haunts you throughout the novel and even long afterwards and and makes you keep returning to it and and thinking about it and 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 every time you think about it and turn it over in your mind it, it has new meaning for you which is it is a wonderful aspect of, of fiction writing and in fact any good piece of writing and any good piece of art that, that if it can continue to haunt you long after the initial experience that, that that's to me that's an accomplishment that that deepens you as the reader or the viewer and and enriches your life it extends the boundaries of your life do you feel that way about science too that 
you know, there's so much abiding mystery and that it not just enriches your life, but like furthers it in some way. Oh, definitely. Definitely. It's not just the, the facts that we learn, but it's the, the process of exploration that I think is so enriching. I can't really articulate a good answer to your to your comment, but it's a good it's a good comment. I think the other thing that so many novels are about that also is just so perplexing in science is the concept of time. And that is at the heart of so much physics when you when you sort of look at the narrative around what you're trying to think about. And you write that time and order, that time basically is the movement of order to disorder. As time progresses, disorder ensues. And otherwise, yeah. time would be a still photo for eternity. It's an interesting concept, both in physics and in writing. Yes, I, I think so. Um, time is associated with change. And if there's no change, and of course, a clock literally has change going on because a hand is moving around or uh, something is, is moving inside the clock. Um, if you have no change, you, you really have no time in any practical sense. And uh, there's a very powerful law in physics called the second law of thermodynamics, which was uh, understood in the, in the 19th century, which says that an isolated system like, uh, let's say, a, a box with, with some things in it, or like a, a room with all of the windows closed, that the natural evolution of such things is to go from order to, 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 to disorder. That's the, the natural form of ch in which change takes its place. So if, if you close all the windows in a room and no one goes into the room to clean it, the room is going to get dustier and dustier. And uh, uh, that's the, the natural direction in which things happen, and that is the direction of time and going from order to disorder. Um, so that's a, a basic fact of, of the cosmos. I think then that what many people are looking for in fiction is not only good characters, but evolution of the characters. At the end of a novel or the end of a short story, a, a character or several characters should be in a different place than they were at the beginning of the novel. Not, not a different place geographically, but a different place mentally. They, they should have evolved in some way or another. Um, I mean, it doesn't matter what direction they've evolved. It can be up or down, but they've, they've evolved. I don't think that the evolution in fiction is, is nece necessarily follows the second law of thermodynamics. That is, I don't think that, that the evolution of a character has to be towards one of greater chaos and disorganization. But I think that the evolution is very, very important. And uh, I, I call it the narrative force. 
and and the and the novel or the story. You know what what is pushing the story along? Why do you want to keep turning the pages? Well, you want to see what happens. There's some there's some plot developing or some narrative uh, that is taking you someplace, and that's that's an evolution. Uh, so you could say that that in a novel, the direction of time is the direction of the narrative, whereas in physics and in the world, the direction of time is the di direction of disorder, order changing to disorder. I think a lot in fiction, but also what we're looking for through all of this is is meaning. And it, you write in there about how it's so improbable that we're alive of all the zillions of atoms and molecules in the universe. We are composed of the very few that arranged to make living matter. And that only 10% of the stars out there could maybe support life and be habitable. That we are, on their most basic level, 65% oxygen, 18% carbon, 10% hydrogen, 3% nitrogen, 1.4% calcium, 1.1% phosphorus, and a smattering of 54 other elements. And still, we want to make meaning. Art um, is something we want to make, that we can observe ourselves in the universe. We, we do search for an order out of, out of all the chaos. Yes. Well, I think that the search for meaning is a feature of higher intelligence. And I don't think that a cricket or, or a worm is searching for meaning, but I do think probably, or I don't, I mean, it's, it's possible that, that some of the more intelligent animals like dolphins and chimpanzees have some concept of meaning. I know we know that they have a concept of play and a concept of their mortality. I think at higher levels of intelligence, that we want to know what has meaning, both in our in our own personal lives and in and in the cosmos. I think that the search for meaning is driven by a confrontation with our mortality. That's just my hypothesis. Once we become aware that we have a limited lifetime, and we understand the significance of that, then we want to know what more is there. Am I just going to be a brief flash in the pan? How am I connected to the rest of the cosmos? Because I think that through connection and, and meaning that we somehow rise above our individual mortalities, that we connect to the long history of human beings going back for millions of years in the past and million years in the future, that we become part of that tapestry of humanity and and somehow that circumvents our individual mortality so i think the search for meaning is driven by an awareness of our our mortality and an attempt to deal with it in some way and it's so interesting when you talk about our mortality because it, inherent in the idea of mortality is that we're alive. And one of the things you spent some time on in one of your essays was talking about synthetic biology. You talked about cloning and 
making life in a laboratory. And I think there's so much rich, juicy content there to think about. Yeah. The, the ability to, to create life in a laboratory starting from non-life. And of course, most biologists agree on the, the properties of a thing that, that deems it alive. But I think that that raises all kinds of philosophical and theological questions. I have a, a very good friend who's uh, Micah Greenstein, who's a rabbi in Memphis, Tennessee. I asked him this question about whether he would, how he would regard uh, an organism that was created from scratch. And he, and he said that it would not have a soul because only God can breathe a soul into a, a living being. So it would be a, a soulless creature. Um, so that's just one theological angle on on that. Uh, philosophically, it raises the question of, of what is the difference between living and, and non-living material matter. And if we are in that rare fraction of matter that is that is alive in the cosmos, which is just a tiny, tiny fraction, then does that infer, uh, does that uh, impose any obligation to us? If we are alive and, 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 and living material is only a tiny fraction of all material in the cosmos, perhaps we have an obligation to observe and record because we are the spectators of this majestic natural play that is unfolding, the, the birth of stars and the death of stars and the expansion of the galaxies in space. We are the only thing, the only collection of atoms and molecules that can observe that and comment on it and record it. So that seems to me to impose some kind of uh, obligation to us. Getting back to where we started, the creation of life from non-life can, can we take a group of inanimate atoms and molecules and confer that obligation on it by making it alive? I don't know. Uh, that, I, I think all of the great questions don't have answers. Um, that's part of what makes them great questions. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So I'm going to read a little bit from uh, a, a, a little book called Letters to a Young Poet by the German poet Rainer Maria Rilke. And uh, a, a beginning poet, uh, Rilke was already an established poet at this time. This had been uh, around 1910 or so. And uh, a beginning poet wrote to Rilke and asked him whether he should continue writing. And, and this and, and wrote him a, a series of letters, and Rilke wrote back letters. And so I'm going to read a little bit of one of Rilke's letters to the young poet. You are so young, so before all beginning, and I want to beg you as much as I can, dear sir, to be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart, and to try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers, 
which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Do you want to tell me more about why you chose that? Well, I love the the idea of of trying to, to love the questions themselves because I think that that, that represents the arts. Whereas uh, in the sciences, we we work only on on questions that have definite answers. Um, and this I learned as a as a graduate student uh, that we should not be spending our time on questions that don't have definite answers. Um, it might take a year or ten years to find the answer, but but at any given moment, a scientist is working on a question that she thinks has a definite answer. Whereas what Rilke is saying here, and I think applies to the arts and the humanities, is that the the answer is not so important as the question itself. This is also related to what we were saying earlier about a good character in a novel should be uh, someone that you don't fully understand. That the question is what provokes our inner exploration and our creativity and our imagination, the question itself. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Well, I'm going to read from a novel uh, that I wrote that I published around the year 2000. It's called The Diagnosis, and it's about uh, a man who is riding the subway one morning to work and forgets, suddenly forgets where he's going, and he then that's the beginning of, of an illness that he has that he, he never is able to resolve. And uh, his wife, Melissa, the, the, char the main character's name is Bill, his wife, Melissa, is first sympathetic with his illness, and then she becomes enraged by it uh, because she's afraid of, of losing everything that she has. Uh, he's the breadwinner of the family, and he's probably going to lose his job because of the illness. His wife, Melissa, grew up poor, and her dream in life was to, to have enough money to be comfortable, and now she's afraid that it's all going to be taken away. And I struggled with the character of Melissa for a long time because I didn't understand her at, at all. And I, I came to eventually understand that she was doing the best that she could under the circumstances. I want to read uh, a little passage from, from that. So the husband, Bill, is, is, is having trouble physically standing up. Help me, he said. He raised himself to his knees. Her face still strange and contorted, she helped maneuver him to the blanket box bench at the foot of the bed. Melissa stood staring at him. Tell me, she said. He couldn't answer. Reaching out, he touched the hollow at the base of her neck. Then he took her hand and held it against his cheek. You can't walk, can you? She said in a voice that seemed to come not from within her, but beside her, like the voice of a ventriloquist. Bill, oh, Bill, she began kissing him. This can't happen to us. Why is this happening? Her tears dripped down his chest and fell on his dead legs. 
Then something seemed to snap, and she moved away from his grasp. She went to the window. After a few moments, she said, Our life is over. Melissa, he said. Oh, she murmured, I don't know if I can take it anymore. Bill, I'm not strong enough. She turned and stared at him, and the blood vessels were popping out of her face. You're throwing everything away, everything we've worked for, your job, your health, our family. We'll lose the house. I don't know what will happen to us. Don't you get it, Bill? It's all in your head. Tell me why you chose that. Well, I chose that because I had a very hard time writing the character of Melissa. And the first three drafts of the book, I knew that she wasn't real. I had not brought her to life in the first three drafts of the book. At some point, I was thinking about her. Of course, when you're writing a novel, the characters are always in your head. And in fact, long after the book is finished, they're, they're, they're in your head. I began having a little bit of sympathy for her. And at that point, I, I think I changed one sentence and suddenly she came alive for me. And I think that that sentence occurred somewhere in that passage that I just, that I just read. And on the fourth draft, she came alive for me. And, and, and after that, uh, I thought she was, you know, I was satisfied with her as a character. Where do you write? Well, I write in two places. Uh, one is, is I have a, a, a summer home on, a, on an island, and I have a, a little desk there that, that has a, a window that looks out on a pine needle-covered path that goes down to the ocean beautiful view. The other place that I write is in this tiny room off my garage that's really not much bigger than a large closet. And when I look up from my desk there, I just see a a cement wall uh, about a foot from my face. The the amazing thing is that both of those places serve me equally well as a writer. Both of them work because after a few minutes of writing, I, I have sort of disappeared into that realm that I'm trying to create. And, and, and I've lost all sense of my body and all sense of time and all sense of where I am. So both of those two places, which are vastly different, serve me equally well. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, you can never get away from it. The thing that I'm writing, whether it's nonfiction or, or fiction, is always in my head. But I, I take walks, I read. In the summertime, I, I go on kayak rides. But as I said, you can never really get away from it. There's something that, that Walt Whitman said uh, when he realized that he was destined to be a poet. He said, never more shall I escape. Never more shall I escape. And that's part of what it means to be a writer. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My wife. Um, she doesn't read everything, but she reads most things. She's a painter, and uh, I have learned a lot about the art of painting from her, and, and she's learned something about the art of writing from me. Um, so she's gotten to be a good reader. And uh, I show it to her first, and, and then 
um, I might show it to one or two other trusted readers. And then, of course, then to my editor after that. How have you dealt with rejection? When I was early in my career as a writer, uh, I took reviews and and criticism very hard. And I would be uh, devastated by a bad review or a negative comment of a reader. But now, 40 years later, or whatever the number is, it, it doesn't bother me nearly as much. I mean, I think that, that any writer or any artist would be lying if they said that the criticism didn't mean anything to them. But, but it, it, it bothers me much, much less when, when I get rejected. And I don't know whether that's <clears throat> because I'm older and more mature or because I think that my reputation is established and one more book, plus or minus, is not going to matter. Um, I'm not sure, but uh, that's been my, the history of my dealing with rejection. And what is your favorite word? Oh, that's a tough one. Well, can I give you two favorites? Serenity and majesty, thinking of nouns. I would say those are my favorite words. Thank you so much for the time and for coming on the show again. Well, thank you, Mitzi. I I enjoyed our conversation last time a few years ago, and uh, I think you're you're a, a very astute reader and and a very thoughtful person. So it's it's always fun to to talk to you and get your perspective as well as mine. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Alan Lightman, author of the nonfiction book of essays called Probable Impossibilities. If you like today's show, check out my first interview with Alan Lightman, where we talked about faith in the overwhelming universe. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Anna North, Gabriela Garcia, Marissa Silver, Stephen Pressfield, and Kevin McElvoy. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.